Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, we'll try to start here. Uh, Paul's second missionary journey, we were not able to get as far as I wanted last week, so I put handouts from last week still up there. Uh, we're on chapter 18, and then uh, a new handout for this week. I, I didn't get enough time to format it in the same way, so it looks a little different. But in the second missionary journey, we've already tracked uh, Paul's overland journey, and then he crosses over the sea to Macedonia, and then we ended class last week with him in Athens. Uh, he left uh, his his partners, uh, Silas and Timothy, uh, still up in Macedonia. He seems to have gone down to Athens uh, by himself, and then we heard his speech there that he gave before the uh, Mars Hill group, the Areopagus, and now we're continuing down to Corinth. And I said that in Greece, uh, he's, he's hitting big, really important cities. Athens, I said, may not have been as populous as it once was. And so not a great city in that sense, but it has the, the huge cultural background that Athens is the, is the home of Plato and Socrates. It's this uh, big cultural center. And so he, he goes there and he could have very well been impressed by all of those things. But we saw instead that he was distressed uh, instead of impressed by all of the idolatry that he saw. And yet he somehow found a way to make that a focus and proclaim the, the one true God. Um, but he didn't necessarily have great success. He, he did plant uh, the word of God there in Athens, but he moves on from Athens to Corinth. Uh, and Corinth is a big commercial center. Um, it's hard to see in this map, but connecting uh, the, this lower area of Greece from, uh, to the upper area is just this very small strip of land. And so back in the day when you were going to be sailing, if you wanted to sail from one side of Greece to the other, you can sail this southern route all the way across, but this little strip of land was short enough that some people would go to the port there right by Corinth and they would disembark all of the stuff, the goods that they have on their ships, carry it across land and then put it on another ship on the other side of Corinth. And this would save a lot of time uh, and, and sailing. You never know what you're going to hit on the seas, whether pirates or um, bad weather, that kind of thing. So because of that, Corinth became a hugely important city for commerce and trade because it, it occupied that little narrow area. Um, nowadays, there is an actual canal uh, there at Corinth. 
So if, if it were to be used for, for shipping, they, they no longer would have to disembark everything, bring it across land, and then uh, get into another boat. There's an actual canal there. And so if you ever go on a, a journey and see Corinth, uh, you can go across the bridge and, and see that man-made canal. There you go. So be, be, be impressed by the feats of modern engineering that they didn't necessarily have back then. So that's what makes Corinth a really big deal. Because it's a commercial center, there's a lot of stuff going there. And uh, if you know anything about commercial centers, especially with ports, what kind of people live in a port city like that? Sailors. Sailors. Sailors and sailors are there. Sailors got to be entertained. How do you entertain a sailor? <laughs> you have your, your bars and taverns. You have your prostitution rings. You know, all of that stuff. And Corinth has all of that, their own red light district. I mean, not that other cities didn't, but Corinth, because of that, does. And so... This is important to keep in mind, not just right now, but as you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, right? He talks about some pretty messed up stuff that happens in Corinth. And those are issues that he doesn't necessarily address in some of his other letters. And you think about it and you're like, oh, well, that's because Corinth is a kind of seedy place. I mean, there are good people there. There are good people everywhere. But there's also a lot of the bad influence there in Corinth because of the kinds of people that it would attract. There's obviously a lot of different religious uh, points of view there as well. But unlike Athens, which is more like a, an intellectual place, Corinth is the, you, you go there, you see a little bit of everything. So chapter 18 after Paul, uh, after this, after he, he had given that speech there at the Areopagus, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew there named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. I, I touched upon this, I think, uh, earlier, uh, maybe, I, maybe I didn't, we've, we've covered so much stuff, but again, the Jews as a people group are not really in high favor uh, before Christians come along, you know, that didn't matter, because they just, they don't fit. And especially at Rome, where the emperor is, where, you know, that's the, the, the capital of the empire, there, there was a little bit of tolerance for the Jews because they they were able to find their niche in society and, and do things that other people necessarily didn't like doing or, you know, whatever. They found their place in society. But as the emperors go through uh, history, the feeling of putting up with the Jews, it, it wavers. Some emperors, they're, they're okay with the Jews. Some are not. At the time of Claudius, we're at about... Uh, oh, he reigned in the late 40s, early 50s AD. Uh, at the time of Claudius, a Roman historian, Tacitus, tells us that there was a disturbance in Rome among the Jews on account of a man 
whose name was Crestus. Now, Tacitus is not a Christian, doesn't necessarily know a lot about Christians. He's a Roman senator, so he lives very, very far away. But uh, to hear about a disturbance among the Jews caused by a man named Crestus, and just sort of leaves it at that, has caused most historians to kind of connect the dots to what we hear about in Acts and what we know is happening already throughout the empire and to kind of figure that this Crestus that he talks about is likely none other than our guy Christ, whom obviously we know the Christ as Jesus. So this this reason that Priscilla and Aquila leave Rome was not by their choice, but because Claudius kicks out all of the Jews, Jews and Christians, again, because what's the difference to a polytheist? They, they both look the same. And the disturbance likely was because of the gospel, because the gospel has come back to Rome and people are starting to learn about the Christ is this man, Jesus. And just like there were disturbances with Paul, the opposition among the Jews, people kicking him out of synagogues, people starting mobs and riots, seems like the same thing was happening in Rome. We don't know the names of the people that brought the gospel to Rome, but it seems that the gospel is already there. Okay, so this is interesting, I think, for Paul and intrigues him because we're going to hear a little bit later about how Paul is going to set his sights for Rome. He is going to want to go to Rome too. Uh, And so we know this is, again, Tacitus is the name of this historian, that this is likely already a sign that the gospels there has produced division. It, it would not seem that this is good for Christianity. But again, when one emperor turns into another emperor, some of these decrees may be forgotten or relaxed or whatever. Um, this is not the end of, of Jews and Christians in Rome. This just happened to be a particular boiling point, and the Emperor Claudius kind of had enough. He he didn't want any of these troubles in his home city. So Paul meets them there in Corinth. Now, it says that they've kind of been bouncing around from place to place, but they happen to find one another, and Paul makes this connection. Hey, you're a Jew who has now become a Christian? Paul says, that's awesome. I, I have that connection too. And they have another connection. The connection was that Uh, they had the same trade, that they were all tent makers. And tent maker here, the the literal meaning is is a worker in leather. And so you can think like making tents, but a tent maker would have also worked with making sails for for boats, for sailing, same kind of material that they are working with. And so why would they have come to a city like Corinth? Because there's a lot of mercantile and sailing activity that's going to happen uh, from the east and from the west. It's, it's a good place to sit and set up shop. You, you, you're always probably going to have business. So 
Priscilla and Aquila are there. Paul, we learn, we haven't learned this about him up until this point, that he has a trade. Most of the time we think of Paul just kind of going around and he's an itinerant preacher because that's all we hear about him doing. And now we pick up this little detail. He, he could earn his way too. Um, he could, from time to time, get into the business and we don't, you know, would he just show up at a place and say, hey, I, I, I know how to do this stuff. I can help out. We don't really know. But here he can stay, he can work, he can earn money, he can take care of himself, even if there isn't a church that is willing to support them. In Paul's letters, he sometimes talks about this, how he didn't want to be a burden on the people, and so he has uh, this, this dual vocation. But even if he's working, he's still doing the thing that we know him for. He is going to reason in the synagogue every Sabbath and try to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he goes to Corinth, same procedure, goes to the synagogues. There he's trying to teach them that the Christ is Jesus, to make that connection, to show them in the Old Testament who the Christ really is, what he's about. All right, then, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Broken record, but he he continues that same trajectory. He'll go until they basically won't let him be there anymore. But then he's not yet ready to leave the city. That just marks part two of his ministry. First to the Jews, okay? If the Jews won't listen to me, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And so he does. It says he left there, and that is the synagogue, and he goes to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Probably the way he's described, a Gentile worshiper of God. So not a Jew by race, by his family history, but somebody who believed in the one true God. And as Paul is there, believes that Jesus is the Messiah, um, the son of this one true God. And we've heard about that in other ones. He stayed at Jason's house before. We heard about Lydia's house. So Paul is, is very often taken in through the hospitality of others. There were things like um, lodges and inns where Paul could have stayed. He's making money. He could afford to do that. But very often, people are taking him in, and he seems to use those homes uh, as a headquarters for bringing other people to the gospel. What we also learn, though, is that this man, his house was next door to the Jewish synagogue, which had to have been a little bit uncomfortable because he's basically kicked out of the synagogue, but he's seeing the synagogue traffic every day as he's next door. And those people who know that Paul was kicked out know that he would dare to set up shop there right next to the synagogue. He's not afraid of the threats that are brought against him. He only wants to preach that word. Also an interesting thing is that we learn that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So even though there was conflict and opposition among the Jews, the head of the synagogue, this man named Crispus, he does end up believing in Jesus. So um, it wasn't that he just picked off some of like the 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 lower people in the synagogue, new believers or that kind of thing. 
he went right to the top that Crispus would would uh, abdicate that position when there was op- opposition against Paul and the Christians that no I I too believe this Paul and if it means leaving the synagogue I I will leave the synagogue because I have to follow the one true God and Paul as as one of his messengers so we learn that his ministry there is, is pretty successful. Maybe not among the Jews, maybe not where he first set out to have that success, but it seems especially among the Gentiles. Because as Luke goes on to describe the ministry, uh, Paul has a vision that, that Jesus appears to him in a dream and tells him to stay there. So, Paul, you may feel like you're a failure because you tried to go to the Jews and the Jews didn't want you and now you're just among the Gentiles. But Jesus tells him, stay there. You're doing good work. This is exactly why I brought you to this city. Um, My people are here and you must proclaim that word so that my people here can hear that. And the my people that Jesus is talking about are not just Jews. They are especially the Gentiles. So again, Jesus and the Holy Spirit affirming this Gentile ministry, that this is not just a backup plan or what to do when one thing doesn't work. It is the full plan of God that the Gentiles also are part of God's family. Um, Jesus in his own ministry had this same um, orientation, that, that he goes first to the Jews, but it's not as though he disassociated himself from the Gentiles. He, he not only has that ministry to like the Samaritan woman, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, you know, the woman that they have the, the interaction where uh, Jesus basically calls her a dog and she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs will eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Uh, there's the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. There's the feeding the 5,000. But after that, there's Jesus feeding the 4,000. And this seems to be a, a much diverse crowd, not necessarily all Jews, to, to show that, that Jesus feeds all the people, not just the Jews, because all of them are God's people. God sends Jesus first to the Jews as the Savior, the Messiah promised to them, but the Jewish people were called to be a light unto the Gentiles. So their that ministry should reflect all of that. So Paul's affirmed here, and the consequence, the result of this, is that Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months. So even though we look at Paul's missionary journey, um, again, signposting doesn't happen very good as far as trying to figure out the chronology, but this whole second missionary journey, we think, is about two years in length. Well, he he spends 18 months, a year and a half, in Corinth. So that means all of this part that looks pretty impressive he really wasn't in most of those cities for all of that long. A couple of times we hear he was in this, he was in that city for three Sabbaths and then the riots break out or whatever. So we, we get that, 
idea that he wasn't in them. But again, he's in Corinth for a really long time. So he establishes a perhaps closer relationship with some of those people than he's had the chance to in other places, which again, applying your your other Bible knowledge, okay, we have a letter to the Philippians, we have a letter to the Thessalonians, but to many other of these places, we don't have a letter to the Bereans, uh, we don't have a letter to Troas, we don't have one to, uh, well, we have the Galatians. So Galatians can can cover kind of all of these people if they would have circulated that letter around. Um, but the the connection that Paul had at some of these other places may not have been as strong. But he had his work cut out here because Corinth was a really, really big city. A lot of action, a lot of uh, interchange. So he's able to make some relationships, but there also could have been a lot of people who were passing through, in and out. And so the audience could have been changing or, or varied a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not only setting roots there in Corinth, but again, because people are always passing through, you're, you're getting that message that's going to be going out again to lots of different places, kind of reminiscent of Pentecost, where there were a lot of people from a lot of different places of the empire there at Pentecost in Jerusalem. But then when Pentecost is over, they're all spreading back out, going back to their homes. All right, one other really cool thing happens at Corinth. And again, you hear about all of the negative stuff and you hear about what's going to happen. Uh, Gallio, the proconsul of Ikea, uh, Ikea the, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and they bring him before the tribunal. That's the, the judges of that day. And so you kind of can guess what's going to happen. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be sentenced to death because that's basically what's happened to him so far. But something different happens at, at Corinth. They, the Jews, they say, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. So he basically recognizes, and that's, that's sort of the feeling that we're, we're given, he recognizes that he's not going to be able to solve this problem. This, this is a problem of their own. And for him to take sides, it's not going to make governing that area any easier. So he just sort of refuses. And you can understand how this is kind of a, a wise and shrewd thing. So is he showing favoritism? Not necessarily. The fact that Jews are the ones that are coming up and bringing these charges against Paul, again, a reflection of Jews standing before the Romans like, uh-oh, the, the Jews are coming. This, this can't be good because they, they're always problematic and difficult to rule. This is kind of more like what happens with Pontius Pilate, right? Pontius Pilate really didn't want to get involved with, with Jesus. He, he realizes that he's kind of in a no-win scenario, and yet the people force him to make a decision. 
we want this Jesus dead. We are going to crucify him. And so you, you, you say that you're just going to beat him or imprison him. That's not good enough. And so Pontius Pilate realizes that the mob before him is only going to really be settled if he gives Jesus up unto death. But Pontius Pilate makes clear that that's not his decision. He, he just wanted to release him, let it go, and be done with it. Here, Gallio's essentially making a, a similar kind of judgment. I don't really want to make a decision here. There's no good way to solve this problem. But that happens for the benefit of Paul. Again, he's not going to be beaten. He's not going to be imprisoned or anything like this. But what continues from their action? Verse 16, uh, he drove them from the tribunal, from the courtroom, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. So I don't really know what they thought that would accomplish. Uh, it, It shows them, you know, okay, if you're going to tell us that this is in our own hands, this, this is what it's going to mean. It's going to mean violence, um, beating, beating somebody up. But Gallio is still unfazed by it. He just, he, he's not going to take the bait and just sort of lets it go. Once he becomes a Christian, he's a believer in the, in the Lord. He, like Paul, he's not going to be He's not going to be welcome back. So Sosthenes is, yes, yeah, so- Sosthenes is the guy who uh, presumably takes over after Christmas. So this is this is a good thing I'm saying because Luke here shows a, a proconsul. This is again a Roman official. This is not somebody that the that the people elect themselves. This is he doesn't have to answer to the people. He only has to answer to Rome. Same thing with Pontius Pilate. They are accountable to Rome. The same thing was true of Herod. Rome is in charge here. And so this is good for Paul because it shows that the Roman Empire, they don't really have a problem with Paul. That They don't see him as this great troublemaker that others have made him out to be. And if Paul were trying to keep track of, you know, like a case history, he could point to here in Corinth with Gallio that they thought that I was a troublemaker. They made all of these charges against me, but Gallio, he wouldn't even hear the case. He recognized that I was not a threat. I wasn't breaking any rules or any laws, and he let me be, just like we let the, the Jews be. So this is kind of a, an apologetic of sorts that shows that, yes, the Jews basically in every city um, oppose Paul, but does Rome do, do the political leaders? Well, in some cases they did, but in a lot of other places, they're willing to listen to Paul, to entertain what he has to say. And more importantly, they don't consider Paul public enemy number one. He is not a threat to them. I know that's contrary to what we've heard about before, about how um, charges were brought, that, that these people are turning the world upside down. They are uh, teaching contrary that, that Caesar is not the king, but Jesus is the king. But again, when you're trying to get somebody in trouble, 
you know the buzzwords. You know what charges to bring against someone. But just because you bring those charges doesn't necessarily mean they're true. And we know from Paul's own letters that he he does talk about um, the, the Roman government. And he says that we as Christians should submit to that government, recognize their authority. Now, not totally, not as though their authority trumps God's, but to recognize that God has put them in place to keep the peace. So Paul does not say, down with the empire, let's start a revolution, burn everything. His message is rather a positive one, that Jesus, the Son of God, is the true king of a kingdom that is even greater than the kingdoms of this world because it has no end. It is a kingdom of hope and love and peace, unlike the kingdoms of this world. So here in Corinth is is actually a really positive uh, experience. I know it doesn't sound that way based on how it starts, but it, it really does end in a very positive way. It says, after this, Paul uh, stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And, Aquila. and at uh, Sencrii, I don't even know how to pronounce that one, uh, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. I put a note on that just to say I have no idea what that means, and most other people don't uh, either. It, it, I don't know why Luke mentions it. So it seems that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, haircutting and vows have to do with a na- like the Nazarite vow. Think Samson, not cutting your hair. He was a Nazarite, but. The context is really the more important question. Okay, so it was a Nazarite vow that he fulfilled, but for what? Why? You know, what, what was the vow undertaken for? Luke, Luke doesn't tell us that. So it's, ask Luke someday, why, why did you let us know about this? What, what does this verse have to do with anything? I don't know, but he fulfilled a vow. He cut off his hair. Um, it's there. There, there are there are commentators that have creative ideas, but it's all it's all conjecture and guess. There's just there's not enough to figure out what's going on there. He is now underway to Ephesus. Okay, so from Corinth, sailing across the Aegean to Ephesus, uh, here on the coast of of Asia Minor. And the interesting thing about this is that. When Paul was in Antioch, coming out of the uh, of this journey, he wanted to go this way, but we read the Holy Spirit opposed him. And then he wanted to go north to Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit opposed him, so he ends up kind of taking that middle road to Troas. Well, the Spirit opposed him going to Ephesus before, but now it seems that this path is open to him. So why it was that God didn't want him there earlier, but now is here, uh, now he can come here now, all you can say is God's timing. The time wasn't right for whatever reason, but now it is right, except he's not really intending to stay there. The Ephesus is just kind of a stopping point on the greater journey home, but you have to stop somewhere to, you know, change ships or whatever. So he stops there at Ephesus. His friends Priscilla and Aquila come with him. Um, But though 
he's there, he does what he does. He goes to the synagogue, he reasons, reasons with the Jews. They asked him to stay for a longer period. Well, that never happens. Usually when he's there in a synagogue, the next thing we hear about is that he's opposed. So that's, that's kind of interesting. They ask him to stay longer, but he says no. He says that he, he has to go. But I will return to you if God wills. And so he sets sail from Ephesus. So he's there for just a short period of time. They want him longer, like he stayed at Corinth for 18 months. But again, for whatever reason, Paul seems to, nope, this isn't the right time. I've got to go. So don't think that Paul is ever just after that instant easy success. I mean, here an audience is willing, but he leaves. He, he, is, he is willing to go. It's another reminder that the church is not Paul's church. It's God's church. And again, whatever Paul knows from God, it seems to say everything here is, is okay, Paul. I, I got it. Priscilla and Aquila, they evidently stay behind. They know the same message that you know. They can teach. They can proclaim. There'll be other teachers. We'll talk about Apollos in just a, a second here. But he's going to go. And uh, when he leaves from Ephesus, he lands back in Caesarea. That's the big port. And then it talks about him going back to Antioch. He, it does not mention here that he goes to Jerusalem, but most commentators assume that he, he does. He, he checks in or um, brings offerings to the, to the people there from some of his journeys. The reason, the main reason why they say he went to Jerusalem, even though it doesn't say that, is because it says that he goes to Caesarea, and then it says he, he went up, and he goes to Antioch. And generally, whenever they use the language of going, of going up, uh, you go up to Jerusalem. That, it's kind of like reserved for that. That's the, the high city. It's the holy place, Mount Zion. And so they think the went up tells us that he goes to Jerusalem. But the more important thing is that he goes back to Antioch after that. And so, uh, we, we don't, we don't hear about some of the intervening stuff. And that's perfectly acceptable with the way that, that Luke narrates things because he doesn't give us every single detail along every single step. He, but he, he paints the big picture. Um, and so it's, it's possible, probable, that he went to Jerusalem before going up to Antioch. Otherwise, why would he even sail to Caesarea in the first place? Uh, we've learned that Antioch has a port. He's left from the port in Antioch before. Why wouldn't he just, if his destination was Antioch, that would have been the more logical place to to stop. But here is a very quick transition, as I said. This marks the end of the second missionary journey. He's, he's back home in Judea, and immediately he's ready to go again. So he reports back very quickly, but he's, he's, he's itching to go. He wants to get back out there, and what he does is goes back to the same places that he's been before. Um, and uh, let me see here. I think this is it. Yeah, this is this. Is the, so, this is the third missionary journey. So, this the second missionary journey and the third missionary journey. They look 
very similar. Uh, they're, they're wide ranging. It starts with a land journey. It includes a little bit of sea travel. Um, what's going to be different is basically the timeline and where he stays and how long he stays. So the second missionary journey has a very long stay in Corinth, 18 months. And so that's the big chunk of his time. The third missionary journey, Ephesus, he just barely touched in the second missionary journey. He, he used it as a port as he was coming back. They wanted him to stay longer, but he didn't. The third missionary journey, the majority of the time is going to be spent at Ephesus. So first missionary journey, this is kind of a review of all of them. First missionary journey is Paul and Barnabas kind of go to their home territories. Barnabas is from Cyprus, so they start there and then they loop around on land. Uh, the first missionary journey is also noteworthy because we hear about um, uh, John Mark and how John Mark abandons them. And that becomes important because the second missionary journey, that's going to be the issue that splits up Paul and Barnabas. So first missionary journey is just this very brief and short one. The second missionary journey, so this starts out by sea and goes south and, and then comes on back. The second missionary journey starts from Antioch and they go back to some of the places that they had last been to. This time it's Paul and Silas with he picks up Timothy along the way. But Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, these were places that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. The impetus of the second missionary journey especially is the Jerusalem Council, where they have decided Gentiles have full membership in the, in the church, that they are Christians by the grace of God, not by the law of Moses, not by circumcision, but by faith in Jesus. And so the second missionary journey, again, we have this division where Paul wants to go this way, but the Holy Spirit says no. He wants to go north. The Holy Spirit says no. So he splits the difference, goes through Troas, goes up into the area of Macedonia, by himself goes to Athens, and then Corinth, and then uh, Ephesus, and back home third missionary journey is really remarkable, I said, because he has that yearning to go back to Ephesus. The Holy Spirit will grant it, and he's going to spend a lot of time there. And on his way back, this missionary journey, this is going to kind of be the the downward uh, cycle for Paul. Paul, ultimately, after this missionary journey, he wants to go to Rome, and he will get there, but he gets there as a prisoner um, because of what happens in Jerusalem after he returns from the third missionary journey. So uh, the three journeys, again, they still might be a jumbly mess. Part of it is geography and not really understanding this area very much. But if you think his, his area kind of got bigger as, as they went, the first was the smallest. The second, Corinth, he stays there for a really long time, a year and a half. And in the third, he's going to spend a really long time in Ephesus, but he still will visit and strengthen and uh, uh, make sure everything is going well at these other churches. All right. Questions on the journeys again? The test will be next week, so you've now been fully prepared. How long does he stay in Ephesus? Uh, two plus years. We're going to hear about how he stays two years 
and then it says he stays a little bit longer. All right, meanwhile, meanwhile in Ephesus. So we're about to undertake the third missionary journey, but as Paul is back on his way home and is in journey towards Ephesus, this is kind of a simultaneous piece of action. What's going on in, in Ephesus? In Ephesus, we hear about a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Alexandria is a huge and important city in Egypt, uh, in, in northern Egypt, in the, in the fertile area. Alexandria is famous for having a massive library, massive library. And this is there's this meme on Facebook. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe maybe you haven't. It's it's kind of a nerdy thing, but uh, it's it's basically like uh, all, all classicists or historians they still cry today when they think about the library in Alexandria because it burned down and all of the works there were lost. Alexandria was the place where because they had a library there. It was where the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. So the Septuagint, it, it was done. It was translated there in Alexandria. And so it tells us something about the library, that the library, they weren't just collecting Greek writings. They, they were trying to really get all knowledge there. Think, you know, they were the ancient Google bring us all of your documents. You know, we don't care, but we want to be that repository for study and learning. And so they had the, the Hebrew scrolls there, the Hebrew Bible there. But again, it's in Hebrew. That doesn't help the vast majority of even the intellectuals because they're not studying Hebrew. They weren't Jews. And so they, they got people to translate it, to translate it into Greek. And that happens in the, the, Three, 200s BC, um, so 200 years before the time of Christ. And so, like I said, when we, we've talked about this before, when they're in Berea and they're studying the scriptures, they probably weren't studying the Hebrew Old Testament, but rather the Hebrew Old Testament now translated into Greek because that's more the native language. That's what they understand. Um, just like today, when you go around to Bible studies, you wouldn't assume that people were studying the Bible in Hebrew and Greek because they don't know that language, but you're going to be studying it in, in English, in your own tongue. But it's still God's word. It, it's, it's not any different. So Apollos from Alexandria, that kind of, it marks him as kind of a scholarly fellow. I mean, he could have been a, a dullard, but you're from Alexandria. That's, that's an important place. And what we learn about him matches up with that. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. That's very puzzling to us. Um, we, we would probably like to sit down to Apollos and figure out what? It, it sounds like you know some things, but not others. But how do you know these things and not those things? Um, we, we don't get all of the background here. But Luke sets it up so that we understand that Apollos is a very bright guy and, and knows a lot, but he just, he, 
from the bits and pieces that he knew, he tried to make the best sense possible of things. And so he knows a little bit about Jesus, but he only knows the baptism of John. And as we're going to get into it, it seems that his knowledge of the Holy Spirit is a little bit defective as well. Like he doesn't, he doesn't know about Pentecost. He doesn't know about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know the commissioning that Jesus's disciples were given by the Lord. So he knows some things, but not others. What is, what does that patchwork look like? And how, how does he still get the message right? Um, and we don't know. But what we do know is that Priscilla and Aquila, they knew more than Apollos. They may not have been eloquent speakers like Apollos was. They might not have had all of his learning. But when it came to Jesus, they knew more of the story than Apollos. And so interestingly, because remember, Paul brings Priscilla and Aquila with them to Ephesus. Paul leaves. They stay. So they have the opportunity to teach Apollos what he doesn't know. And the way that they do this is handled with great tact. Um, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So what they don't do is he's teaching and say, um, Mr. Apollo, sir, you're kind of an idiot. You, you got a lot of stuff wrong, and you, you probably should sit down. They, they don't embarrass him publicly. They realize that, that he, he's a genuine man. He, he is not trying to lead people astray. He is not trying to, to spread a, a false gospel or anything that. It's just he doesn't know everything. And so he needs somebody to teach them. And so they take him. They take him aside and they better teach him, better instruct him so that he, he understands the gospel a little bit, a little bit more. Um, so you admire his, uh, his effort, but he just, he didn't know everything. And you have to imagine that this was the case in a lot of cities. Again, Paul is traveling around. There are other people traveling around, but that the message of Jesus is, even if you're a Jew, it still takes a lot of like, but what about this? And, and, but what about that? Well, doesn't this contradict that? You know, there's still a lot of questions. And so people sometimes maybe came up with their own answers to some of those questions. Again, they're, they're trying their best, but until somebody who knew more or knew better, they're kind of at their mercy. So you would understand why they welcome people like Paul to strengthen the church, to make sure that everybody is on the right track. Um, and so after that, uh, Apollos, he, you know, he, he says thank you. And maybe he was a little bit humbled and embarrassed. He doesn't stick around in Ephesus after this. But rather, he goes back to Achaia. Uh, and that's this area here. Um, and in Corinthians, we hear about Apollos again, don't we? He pops up. Do you remember how in the letter to Corinthians, Apollos pops up? It's in the very beginning of the letter. Paul talks about how he planted, um, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. That church there at Apollos, it, or at Apollos, at Corinth, it, it was being divided. 
maybe not by the people on top, but by some of the people below, uh, they said, I really, I, I connect with that Apollos guy and he's right on. And some were like, we really liked Paul. And, and, you know, we really like Peter. He, he speaks more to the, the Jews Jew and we follow him. And Paul has to back this all up and say, wait a second, we're all on the same side. I don't want any of you to think that you follow Apollos or Paul or Peter, and they don't want to think that either. Rather, we all follow God. So it seems that Apollos, when he went back to Kia, he, he was in Corinth. And again, because of his eloquence, he, he made a following. But don't think because he's mentioned there that he was he was a troublemaker. It seems, again, from what we hear about him here at Ephesus, he was a man of God. He was trying to do all of the right things. Here, his knowledge wasn't quite perfect, but Priscilla and Aquila sit him down, get everything right, and then he can go off and he can continue doing what he is going to do. Again, this is another reminder of how much other stuff, activity, missionary activity, is happening at this time. The church is not just growing because of Paul. There, there are other Christians out there doing a lot of different things, traveling around. Priscilla and Aquila, they've made their way all the way from Rome. They're, they're not just sitting in one place, and they seem to have their heart for the gospel. Here, when they, they recognize that there are some problems, they're, they're ready to step in and make sure things go get on the straight and narrow. Yes, Sylvia? Okay, on chapter 19. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't got to that actually. I'm still in 18. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're all right. Yeah. No. It's yeah. No, we we talked about well, we talked about the the baptism stuff because because in it's in 19 um, uh, what's that 25 that Apollos only knew John's baptism. When we get to 19, I think we're going to see some of the effect of what happened when Apollos was around. Uh, yep. Yep. Remember, he spends two years in Ephesus. So if I spend more than one class in Ephesus, I, that's all right. I will not skip it. I promise. All right. So uh, Apollos, we've sent him to Corinth. That's verse 27. Uh, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And so his ministry, Apollos, seems to especially have shown among the Jews. Paul, I think, is being highlighted because of his Gentile ministry. Not that the Gentiles were the only people that he spoke to, but because he did so much among Gentiles, spent so much time with them. Versus Apollos here, he, he's identified as a Jew, and it seems that his ministry always seems to be among the Jews. Apollos is famous for another reason. Um, the book of Hebrews in the Bible, big book does not have any author connected to it. So unlike Paul's epistles, start up Paul, a servant of Christ, Paul, an apostle of the Lord, we know they're by Paul. Um, and then some of the others, the, the letters of, of Peter and so forth, John, they have, they have 
who thereby as well. But Hebrews does not have anything like that. In fact, some people argue that Hebrews isn't even a letter. It's, it, it reads a lot like a sermon. And so they think it might be a sermon. But no matter what it is, people still don't know who wrote it. There have been throughout history a lot of debates about this, okay? And it's one of those fun things scholars do because there's no right answer, no wrong answer. You, you can just sort of have fun. There has been a tradition that has attributed to Paul, um, right or wrong. There, there have been a lot of people who have opposed that because it does not read a lot like Paul's letters, and it, it's, it's different. But if it's to a different audience, it seems to be primarily written for Hebrews, for Jews. If Paul's writing to a different audience, he speaks differently. We've seen that in some of his sermons already. When he's among the Jews, he's trying to make the connection from the Old Testament about who the Christ is. But when he's with the Gentiles, he can't start from there. Instead, he, he starts with, you know, what do you see around you? What do you know? I'll tell you how my God is like the fulfillment of all of that, or, you know, the better example of that. Well, that, that's sort of, for a lot of people, it, Paul just doesn't seem like a very good answer. Well, one of the other answers that was thrown around, it's the answer that Martin Luther liked, is that our guy Apollos is the author of Hebrews. Again, there's no way to prove it or disprove it, but it, there are some things that fit about it because it is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and we know that Paulus and his ministry seems to really be connecting with them. Uh, it is a very eloquent uh, and well-reasoned argument from the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, if you are a Jew and you believe in the priesthood, you believe in prophets, you believe in the temple and the tabernacle and the, and Moses and all of the, the, the many men of faith and women of faith in the Old Testament. If you believe all of those things, Hebrews goes to great effort to show how all of those things point to and are surpassed by, by Jesus. And that would be a wonderful message for someone like Apollos to bring to Jews and say, we're not talking about throwing any of the the Bible out. It is still God's word. But don't you see how all of this was pointing us forward to something so much bigger? That stuff was the shadow and Christ is the reality. So the way of those arguments, um, the way they're composed, you know, there's there's logic and structure, and so it would take a man of great learning or woman of great learning to be able to put something like that together. And so Martin Luther chose for his candidate in that scholarly debate a policy. At the end of the day, it, does it ultimately matter who wrote it? It it it, it shows itself to be God's word. Um, it. The, the people of that day accepted it, even though, again, nobody uh, claims authorship for it. So it, it doesn't matter, but it's an interesting connection here for Apollos, that he is sometimes connected to the book of Hebrews, and you can, you can kind of understand why, because of his reputation. I'm a little lost where Apollo, Apollos went to Acacia. Yeah, so he's from Alexandria, he goes to Ephesus, and this area, Kia, uh, it doesn't say specifically, 
but from Paul's letter to Corinth, we know that he is known among the Corinthians. So, so after, after, yep. So he's in Ephesus after Paul on his second missionary journey is, is leaving and heading towards Caesarea. It, they don't seem to overlap. Before Paul comes back on his third missionary journey, Apollos has left. He's now in Achaia. Where Paul will eventually go, but he's going he's gonna to be here for two years plus in Ephesus. But Paul's already been he had already been there on the second missionary journey, correct? Yeah. So when, when Apollos goes there and it talks about how um, in verse 27, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. They are already Christians there from Paul's ministry or even from other people's ministry. But the point is that uh, Apollos wasn't entering into a situation where he was necessarily breaking new ground. He, he just seemed to have been a, a traveling speaker. Um, Um, yeah. That there was some thought that perhaps the the Jews converted to Christianity were saying, I thought he was coming back. Yeah. And so 70 years has now passed. Yeah. And so this guy, whoever it is, is reassuring them. Yeah. That's a possible argument, but... The dating dating the book of Hebrews, I would I would say we don't yeah you know, that would that would be hard to pin down to. Seven, the reason seventy A.D. usually comes into play is because that's when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans, and that did provide a great opportunity for Christians to say, Jews, you you think that all is lost because the temple is destroyed and, you know, like God has abandoned you and whatnot. We can say definitively God has not abandoned you. In fact, that temple, that was only a shadow of this greater thing. So, yeah, that comes up there. All right, we're going to pause. Sylvia, I'm not avoiding the question. We'll start next week on chapter 19 in Ephesus. And we're going to hear this interesting thing that, like I said, is connected to Apollos, I think. Paul is there, and he finds out that some of the people don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about a baptism of Jesus. They only know the baptism of John. And so Paul has to kind of work his way through that. All right, so we'll, we'll be in Ephesus next week, and we'll try to only spend next week in Ephesus. But there, there is a lot there. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.